Hello and welcome to the Compassionate Leadership Interview. I'm Chris Whitehead and my guest today is Ryek Rizek, author of the book The Anteater and the Jaguar, cafe owner and former mayor of Nevi Sholom Wahat al-Salam. You can find him on Twitter at oasis underscore of underscore peace. Ryek, welcome. Thank you. Born in 1955, to a Palestinian Christian family, you've been living in the Jewish-Palestinian village of Neve Shalom Wahat al-Salam since 1984. In English, it translates to Oasis of Peace. Yeah. Can you tell us more about that unique settlement? Well, the, the reason that it is unique, because so far it is the only community where uh, Palestinians and Jews chose to live together consciously, with no preconditions, with not uh, necessarily being like members of uh, some kind of political group. The founder uh, whom I knew for some years uh, since uh, like when I joined the community in 1984, Bruno Hussar, the founder, passed away in 1996, so I knew him personally for 12 years. But uh, right from the beginning when he started this idea of community where, from his point of view, since he was... um, uh, a man of uh, religion, he, he used to say Christians, Muslims, and Jews would share and live together, as he called them, the sons of Abraham. He believed that uh, there is no other way in this country except for those people to share the country equally. And uh, But he didn't have any like specific idea how to do it. He just wanted to create a place where the followers of those three monotheistic religions could come and live together. And uh, it took uh, a while. I mean, like when Bruno started the project in uh, 1970-71, it wasn't easy. It wasn't, uh, I mean, his request uh, to establish community was not approved by the state. So it took time. Uh, uh, When I came together with my wife in 1984, there were still 20 people living here, 20 adults. Half of them were couples, like five couples and uh, another 10 uh, singles. And the place was still very much underdeveloped. And Bruno used to say, like, if you have the will to accept the other as equal, you are welcome to come and live here. And don't worry about all those, you know, big questions, how we're going to do it, how we're going to share the management of the community, how we are going to educate our kids in the school. Time will uh, help us to find those answers. So it has been like, in one way, a collective, and in another way, a personal uh, search for every individual to understand and to figure out uh, how can we live together as equals, considering the fact that we represent uh, or come from a background of a conflict that has been going on for at least 100 years. So the unique is, I, I mean, people ask me sometimes, but you know, they know that there are some mixed neighborhoods in some different uh, cities and towns in the country like Haifa and Jaffa and Akka and Ramli. But uh, here we chose to be together. Those mixed neighborhoods happen to to be like that because of the historical circumstances. And people there don't really sit and talk and open up questions. Here we decided to sit and talk and discuss every issue to somehow achieve some balance, some understanding of uh, our differences and our uh, separate needs uh, in this community. So it's an open dialogue that has been going on, not necessarily meaning that we have reached agreements about every issue. Every once in a while, we still have an issue to discuss and talk about. 
Uh, I think what makes it uh, more complicated is the fact that people keep joining the community every like year or two. We have another few families coming in. So there is a difference if you talk with the person who has been living here for like me for 36 years almost and somebody who just moved in a year or two years ago. Uh, it's like, I mean, talking with somebody who is uh, still in first grade and somebody who already has a PhD in, uh, <laughs> in this uh, field. But it, it, it is very unique because, uh, because of the fact that we chose to live together. People come here and wonder how can we do it, and uh, considering the fact that there is a conflict outside. But uh, we still go on. We don't have any other choice. I mean, we cannot decide to quit and to close down the community because we have... Uh, arguments here and there but i mean what have kept the community going on is that the fact that uh, our i mean i have learned here that our arguments are, are not necessarily between divided between jews and palestinians as soon as you join the community and you begin to take part in the different meetings and discussions uh, you begin to realize very fast that arguments also take place between jews and jews and between palestinians and palestinians and uh, so it's it was never like divided uh, totally between the two sides and uh, so that's what you begin to realize that the issue is not about them and us you know uh, within mm-hmm. each group there are also conflicts as the, the fact is outside when i say this to people they tell me yeah like outside i mean can all do all the jews in israel agree there is uh, together do all the palestinians agree together no i mean do all the british people agree together do all the americans so there are uh, people who have different levels, I say, always of uh, tolerance and openness uh, towards others, you know, different point of views. So you have those who totally reject, you know, any point of view that doesn't fit their perception, their understanding. And there are others who are, in spite of the fact that they might not agree with you, but they are still open to listen and to try to understand and to reach some kind of understanding uh, somewhere in the middle between uh, both of us. You know. And how did you come to live in Neve Shalom at Wahat al-Salam in the first place? I finished high school in 1973 and I ended up going to the USA in 1975. After seven years, I came back in 1981. And a year later, I met uh, Diana, who uh, I married to. Through Diana, my wife, I learned about this community. I never heard of it before. And uh, she told me I would like to take you to a very special place to see. And uh, so we left Nazareth, I remember that day, and they came to to see the place here. Uh, at that time, uh, most of those who lived here knew Diana because she was already participating uh, in the activity of the School for Peace, where they bring uh, students from both sides for uh, two or three days encounters. She was, so she studied the facilitation and she started working here as a freelance. And as soon as I came to the village, I really liked the place. It was still very in its beginning and uh, there was no infrastructure and a very kind of basic life. Even water and electricity were not available every hour and every day. But at some point, I was uh, beginning to think about uh, leaving Nazareth. I enjoyed coming back to Nazareth, to my hometown. But uh, I realized after some uh, months that uh, this is not the place where I want to continue my life. It uh, was too conservative for me. And I was looking for something else, but I didn't want to go back again abroad to another country. I wanted to stay in the country. And this idea of Salam Neve Shalom, the Oasis of Peace, came up. Even at some point, they told us here after we visited the three, four times, why don't you come and live with us? And uh, we said, yeah, okay, why not? So we applied and we were interviewed. and. Uh, 
screened by the, the acceptance committee. And uh, so we moved in. But at that time, uh, I thought that uh, we will try it, you know, for a few months and see how things go on. And time went by. And uh, so far, 36 years, and we are still here. I love it that you came you came together, but you didn't have a particular model of how it was going to work, did you? You just, you just had that positive intent towards one another and that commitment and the determination to keep talking, I think. Yeah. But you studied for a master's degree in peace studies and conflict resolution at Bradford University in 2000 and uh, subsequently made a start on a PhD at Coventry. Yeah. Did did your learning on those courses change your perspective on the settlement when you returned? More uh, when I did my one year, about one year at Coventry, preparing for my PhD. And uh, I mentioned this in my book because my supervisor at that time, Professor Andrew Rigby, who was also one of the founders of the Peace Studies Department at Bradford uh, back in the mid-70s, he uh, gave me some books to read about intentional communities, alternative communities. They have different names. And I was surprised to learn about communities that were established even back in the 1600s of different uh, European uh, immigrants to the Americas. And some of those communities were like based on religious ideas. Uh, some other later, like during the Industrial Revolution in Europe, there were communities that were based on a communist life of, you know, living together, sharing equal, uh, no rich, no poor, all the same. And so I, I, I did a lot of readings about those different communities at different stages of, in history. And those readings have helped me to understand my community uh, much better than I did before realizing that there has been many examples in the past uh, where many, many also of them have failed to continue. Uh, some uh, couldn't uh, sustain themselves economically, so they had to stop. And some of them have uh, entered into different conflicts, especially after the death of the founder, where there would be arguments about the way of the founder and what he wanted to do. And uh, So anyway, there were many different reasons uh, for those communities to, to stop functioning. And uh, suddenly I began to understand our community and, and to begin to appreciate uh, the founder of our community, Bruno Hussar, much more than I did before. I mean, uh, contrary in, uh, to other uh, founders, uh, most of the other founders of other communities, wherever they were in America or in Europe, Bruno never took for himself the role of the reference, you know, the guru, the man who knows every answer, even though uh, he was uh, much older than the rest of the Members. So when I like when I came in 1984, Bruno was already uh, 73 years old. He was born in 1911, and uh, so he was exactly the age of my father. And the rest of the members who were living here at that time were around my age. You know, I was at that time 28, 29, and the others were uh, uh, a bit younger, a bit older. So 30 plus minus. And uh, and uh, but I always wondered, uh, like Bruno, the founder, he never took this. You know. When we had arguments, like he never said, okay, that's what we should do, and this is the way. And he was like uh, learning uh, this way of life, uh, like every other member. And I think this was one reason that helped the community to continue, uh, even after Bruno passed away in 1996. So, one of the factors of success sounds like the fact that the founder didn't try to, well, he wasn't hero- a heroic leader. He was a servant leader, if you like, by the sound yeah. of it. Yeah, very hum- um, humble person, yeah. 
2019, you completed a book, The Anteater and the Jaguar, about your community. Uh, I've read it, and it's absolutely excellent. What inspired the title of that book? I mean, I, I wasn't uh, thinking about a title when I started writing the book. But around the end, uh, I mean, this uh, story, which I read uh, many years back in 1980, I learned about through a TV series uh, called The Life on Earth, uh, based on a book that was written at that time by David Attenborough, the British uh, presenter yeah. of uh, programs about nature and animals. And, and uh, after I watched the program on uh, the TV, like it was 12 episodes, I bought the book and brought the book back with me. It was time for me to leave and to come back to Nazareth. And I read that book. Uh, I, at that time, I enjoyed reading uh, books about life and nature and evolution and space and galaxies and whatever. And uh, so reading this book, he talks about the life uh, on Earth, I mean, like in, on every continent and every place. And he mentions this uh, story of the encounter between uh, the anteater and the jaguar, as, it, as he was told by the locals at that time in that area of the savannas of the Amazon. And uh, reading that story, I just, it, it, it stuck in my mind, you know, of, of all the book that I read many times, this uh, short story stayed in my mind. And uh, I, since I, I, I wanted to be really sincere about the conflict here in this country and not to present it as, you know, something simple and we can get over it very easily and why can't we? Uh, it is very complicated. It is one of the most complicated conflicts on planet Earth. It's not only political conflict. It also has to have its deep roots in history and religion, Christianity, Islam, Judaism, you name it. And uh, so I, I, m- many times I feel like this... Uh, the division between the two sides and their uh, inability to open up for the other side story, it is uh, it kept reminding me of this deadly hug between the, those two animals. And I feel this like every evening I watch the news on TV I, because, because, I mean, I know Arabic and I know Hebrew and I know English. So I can follow up with the Israeli TV, the Hebrew TV, and I can follow up with the Arab TV stations, uh, the Palestinian TV and Al Jazeera and whatever. And you can hear on the, both sides, you know, people who analyze and uh, talk about the conflict and explain. And uh, and uh, I get very disappointed and very depressed when I hear both people on both sides who are many of them presented as uh, as experts on uh, on the issues of the other side. You know, they bring you this guy; he's an expert about Arab issues, he's an expert about Israeli issues. And but I, I don't I don't get much hope from those people who talk on TV. Both are stuck with their, you know, one-sided position. And uh, so the title, I mean, was, uh, I don't know, I had uh, later some ideas about another another uh, titles, but uh, this, ti- this title, I think, uh, presents the book in, uh, in, 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 in a sincere way. Uh, I mean, to show that the conflict is really complicated and it's not easy, but I, I, I'm optimistic through the book. I mean, I, I argue about ways how to overcome, I mean, our differences and our uh, arguments and to liberate ourselves from this deadly hug between those uh, two animals. Was that what you were trying to achieve through the book? Of um, course, yeah, yeah, of course. And I mean, I, I wanted to come up with something positive. I didn't want just to tell my story, the one-sided story, and not consider the story of the other side. And uh, Because, I mean, I have been living in a very special place. And through my life here in this community, I think I had uh, an opportunity to learn more about myself and about the others you know i'm not like in nazareth sitting in nazareth and uh, talking about the other side the jews from my place without really knowing them personally 
and uh, the same with my Jewish neighbors who are not living in some uh, kibbutz or in Tel Aviv and uh, judging the Arabs from their, uh, as, as many people do, by the way, you know, they judge the others from their po- uh, place without really having uh, uh, had any experience or contact with, with them. But here, the intensive experience that I have had in, in this community, it taught me a lot. And I realized you know, very fast that we are all human beings. We are all stuck in arguments that are based on uh, like uh, what we learned, what we were told, what we have been taught in schools, history books that are not necessarily you know, true enough. They tell us stories and that's what happened and that's what happened. And then you, uh, you end up believing and when we argue with each other, you know, we kind of go back to those uh, things that we have learned. So when we met here together, we began to realize that there is another story in the middle that wasn't told. Because every side in every conflict, they try to present their own story, their, that they are right and the others are wrong. And as I, at some point, I say in my book, I have learned through my life that we are both right and we are both wrong at the same time. So just remain humble and remain open. Regardless of how much do you know, there is the other side is also human beings. They are not, I don't know, aliens from another planet or less humans than you are. And when you, when you connect to this, what I always mention, our common humanity, it will be much easier for you to understand the other side. And uh, so I think the experience that I have had here in my life of living together with the other side have helped me basically. I mean, without this experience, I wouldn't have been able to write the book. Or otherwise, I would be writing another book, you know, to add to this big library of books about Palestine and Israel. But again, like one-sided, you know, where most people on both sides try to present themselves as the victims and others as the aggressors. And we are okay. They are not okay. And so I I I I, can't, I couldn't do that because I through my life here I learned that it is not the, the, the truth it's not the fact. What's been the greatest personal challenge for you living in the community? Wow, the whole idea is a challenge. You know, it's like uh, as I also mentioned in my book, like when I came here, I came here with 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 the idea that I am right and they are wrong. I used to say to me myself, you know, like I will teach them the truth and I will show them how wrong they are and how right we are. But uh, with the time, I uh, I mean, th- th- living here requires a lot of compromise, not to give, give up, you know, about important things that you believe in, but uh, about uh, your attitude, you know. It's uh, to learn to be more open, okay? Not to reject the other directly as soon as they come up with uh, an idea or a thought that uh, doesn't fit your... Uh, your uh, understanding. Uh, besides the fact that community life, which I have learned also after some years, community life by itself is a very big challenge. Some people uh, they, on the level of small family, they cannot tolerate each other in the in the house, you know, like uh, parents and kids and uh, kids and uh, and cousins and whatever. But uh, uh, here I always say that I have chosen to live with with a much bigger family because we are in contact all the time because we are together. Uh, partners in uh, trying to build up something different. Uh, so you cannot just uh, come and live here and sit on the side and not do anything. If you have to have an influence on the community future and plans and uh, ideas, uh, so you have to be. And then you have to attend meetings and you have to witness arguments and you have to say what you think and uh, listen to the others. And it is daily. It is very, very intensive. And uh, if I get like, I mean, uh, angry with you or I uh, 
then uh, suddenly your wife will not speak with me anymore and uh, the other way around and uh, so it's it's like it's like a family and uh, as i said i mean community life and as i mentioned like in my book i live nearby uh, some israeli kibbutz uh, kibbutzes and uh, even though the inhabitants there are all jewish but i hear about their conflicts also that are similar to ours and uh, because they are together all the time, you know, community, they have to share, they have to decide, they have to discuss, they have to elect, to vote, to do things all the time. It's not like, I mean, you live in the in a city somewhere and uh, once uh, every few years you go and put your vote for the municipality or for the for any other thing and then you continue with your life as uh, as usual. But uh, here it is a daily challenge to keep going on and to find a way how to survive i mean this uh, uh this challenge uh, this is social and psychological and uh, so in general i think uh, i would uh, talk about community life by itself as a difficult uh, issue to to live in and uh, this, the other uh, issue is the fact that we are palestinians and jews it's an additional fact to the challenge that we have li- been li- going through here so it wasn't an easy experience, but it was very benefiting uh, for, for me and uh, my, for many others, I think. In your book, you describe the 200-strong primary school as the jewel in the crown of the settlement. Yeah. Could you explain why you say that? Considering the fact that we have other institutions, but uh, I have always believed that, you know, that the experience that you get as a child will remain with you for, forever. And uh, comparing like uh, what uh, little children go through here, like when they attend uh, first grade, second grade, really young kids, seven, eight years old, uh, in comparison to those adults who come and take part in uh, discussions who are already carrying the load on their back and uh, they think that they know everything and the arguments between them are really could get very tough. But uh, when you deal with children, it is uh, something different. And uh, I believe, I mean, through the, the past, uh, since the school was opened in 1984, so it's or, or, almost already 36 years, uh, I think there have been thousands of children who have passed through our school, uh, from the community and from nearby communities around us. And uh, I believe that all those kids who have even, uh, who have spent a year or two or three or four in our school, this experience at, at their youth will remain with them, you know. I think they will grow up with this memory of, you know, being in a mixed school of Jews and Palestinians and they played together. And they... So that's why I call it the jewel, because the effect on other people is much more stronger in the primary school than any other kind of work that we can do together. Uh, I love it that in your book you don't pretend that it has been a walk in the park. For example, you resigned from the School of Peace in yeah. 1989 and boycotted the community from within for seven years. Yeah. How did you become? How did you become reconciled? Yeah. Well, it took time. I mean, those were very difficult years for myself and for my wife too. I don't know. Sometimes I regret the fact that I I have resigned at that time. But uh, now you cannot you know fix the past. But. Uh, even though I have resigned and I quit the community uh, meetings and discussions uh, for uh, six, seven years, I was still living in the community and I was uh, aware of what was happening. And I was still having my uh, private uh, talks and discussions with different uh, members in the community here and there. And uh, 
I did not give up on uh, hope uh, to, to, to do something better in this place here. And uh, it happened in 1997, I think. It was uh, near the election of a new, uh, what we call here, Secretary General or Mayor of the community. And uh, I was asking and I realized that nobody was interested in that position. And uh, so I uh, nominated myself for the position and uh, was elected. Uh, but I still had, uh, went on carrying the pain that I had have had uh, from the previous years but uh, now becoming a mayor i had to f- behave in, i mean not to now the chance to take my revenge but uh, no i mean to prove that i am uh, a human being and uh, at this position i will uh, treat everybody equally regardless if i agreed or did not agree with them and i mean i, I was angry at some uh, point for some years but uh, it didn't mean that i was willing to quit and to leave the community I wanted to stay here, and I believe that it is not the final point where we have reached uh, at that time, but uh, things could be still open and uh, could change, and, uh, uh, and that's what happened. Yeah. When, when you became mayor, I'm curious, did you have a personal leadership philosophy? Or how did you approach the job? Yeah, uh, the first time, I mean, I served as mayor uh, at two different periods. The first one in 90, between 97 and 2000, and the second between 2005 to 2007. During the first period, I was learning the, 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 the position. It, wasn't, uh, it was a new experience for me. And, uh, but I, as I said, I mean, tried to create peace in the community. I mean, uh, considering the different uh, arguments and the needs of the different people here in the community. And to a certain extent, I think I have succeeded. But the most important thing that I was able to do at the, during those years was to uh, finish the uh, conflict that we have had with the uh, monastery of Latron, the tra- Trappist monastery who gave us the land, who gave Bruno the land in the beginning. And uh, at some point there were uh, a conflict uh, started between the community and uh, the monastery. And uh, during that time, I... Uh, as soon as I was elected, I had my intention to befriend with the monastery. So I went down and I uh, asked to meet the head of the monastery. And as a result of this meeting and the other meetings that followed, we were able to reach an agreement and to make peace between us and them. And that was a very great thing that has happened. But the next period that I served between 2005 and 2007, I was, I think, more more mature and more uh, able to deal with conflicts in different ways. And uh, it was uh, after uh, my time in Bradford and Coventry and, and uh, after uh, reading many books about how to make peace with yourself, how to make peace with others, how to reduce the mental suffering that you are living with, uh, uh, learning about uh, taking responsibility, not uh, putting the blame on all the time on the others. Uh, if you, uh, I mean, I learned that if you are... Uh, if you are stuck with your life, if things are not moving well for you, if you are not happy with yourself, is it's always easy. I mean, to say, you know, it is not me. You know, it is because of them and what they what they did. And you always complain and you always put the blame on others. But uh, I learned something about taking responsibility. Is mean to accept also that you, in whatever situation you reach in your life, you also have responsibility for that thing. You cannot just sit and put 100% of the blame on the other people, okay? What about your share? Even though in the, in the small house, I mean, in our small conflicts between us as couples and as family members, and uh, 
uh, either you could all the time put the blame on everybody or you say, okay, I have also a share in, the, in this uh, problem. And, and I also learned another issue about uh, forgiveness and uh, the need to forgive because you cannot, uh, you know, one of the issues that I have really suffered from when I, after I left, uh, finished my first three years uh, serving as mayor in 2000, I finished in summer 2000 and on September that same year, I went to Bradford and I spent one year in Bradford. But uh, during that time in Bradford, I was uh, living in a room in some, I remember the name of the building called Saints Hall on the fourth floor and uh, with another 80 students from all over the world who were studying there. And uh, I, I have suffered, uh, I had a very strong mental suffering because of, uh, I couldn't, uh, you know, somehow find a way how to release those people who I believe that have hurt me from my mind. So even though I was in Bradford, I don't know how many thousands of miles away from my home, most of the time the community that was, was in my mind there. And uh, after some years, you know, reading through some books, I learned that the best way or the easiest way to let those people who have hurt you from your past leave your mind is to learn to forgive. And uh, I learned this from a very nice book uh, for uh, a Japanese author by the name of Masami Sayonji. The book is called The Golden Key of Happiness. And she specifically, I mean, she comes from uh, a Buddhist background, but she also talks specifically about forgiveness and about responsibility. And I liked it when she said, like, when you forgive others, it is not uh, necessarily means that you do a favor for them. It is more doing a favor for yourself. So the time that I started my second service in 2005, I, I, I have started with, with those understandings of uh, what it means to take responsibility and what it means to, for, for, to forgive. And so I had uh, in, uh, in my job people coming to my office almost every day complaining about issues in the community, about work, about life, about their neighbor, whatever. And I always talk with them at that level of, you know, learning to take responsibility, not to put all the blame. And suddenly these thoughts, you know, about the personal uh, issues, uh, forgiveness and responsibility uh, somehow opened up my mind towards the bigger conflict that is really Palestinian conflict. No, that's, that sounds really, really wise to me. That's yeah. brilliant. Thank you, Chris. Despite an impressive visitor list that includes Richard Gere, Stephen Hawking, Roger Waters, a few people have heard of the community in the UK. Yeah. I first heard about Neve Shalom Wahat al-Salam from a Jewish neighbour in Sheffield. As the only community inhabited by choice by Palestinian Arabs and Jews in the whole of Israel-Palestine, it strikes me as surprising that it's not more widely known. Yeah. But why do you think, why do you think that is? I don't think, you know, in spite of the fact that through the years, uh, let's say hundreds of journalists representing uh, different newspapers, uh, TV programmes, uh, have approached us for uh, an article or uh, a report. And uh, I, I think that every, almost every TV in Europe and in America wa was here at some point. And so we have been covered in the, in the press uh, a lot. And uh, we have uh, what we call friends of, our, of the Oasis uh, in different countries in Europe and the States who also talk about us. But I, I felt that uh, there is an intention uh, from many others to kind of uh, intentionally ignore the, pre the presence of this community. Because it shows something else, you know. M many people, uh, regrettably, I talk to and they, they tell me, you know, don't forget about it. I mean, this conflict is unresolvable. There is no way that this conflict can be solved. And here we show a small example. It is not perfect, as I said in my book. It is not utopia, as I said in my book. 
but we show that uh, people can live together. I mean, it, all it needs is to begin with a constitution that says everybody is equal. And if we reach something like that in this country also, I mean, the fact that in the community here that our conflicts are not necessarily, I mean, we have our political arguments about the issues here and there, but uh, uh, most of the arguments here about uh, the community plans and future and uh, budgets and uh, spending and uh, employment of this person, of that person. And, but we, we don't have uh, a place to argue about uh, equality in the community because equality is uh, fixed in the constitution. Nobody can come here and say, yeah, because I'm Jewish, you are not treating me equally or because I'm an Arab, you are not treating me equally. We are showing a great example. But uh, some again, uh, many people come here, uh, you know, thinking that uh, they will hear an answer for every question. Mm. We are not, as I say, I mean, we are not specialists in conflict resolution as a group. You know, we are not all holders of the PhDs in that uh, field. We are just regular people like everybody else who made this choice to come and live together. And in spite of the fact that we are not professionals uh, uh, in fields of conflict management and resolution or whatever, we have been showing an example of a lively community that has been growing. Started with one person when I came with, together with Diana, there were, as I said, mentioned before, 20 people living here. Today we count about 500 people. But regrettably, the fact that we don't have enough land to expand on uh, otherwise, uh, considering the number of people who approach us almost every day. People come here asking for a possibility to come and live here. But uh, since we hold a small piece of land, which is uh, like 50 acres, 200,000 square meters, I mean, it, the, the final uh, plan uh, will uh, include 150 families. Now we are about 110, 120. So as I mentioned in my book, like considering the number of people who approach us every year, we could have to become a small town if we were able to absorb all of them. So this shows that it's not only those who live here believe in this idea. When you, talk, when you ask people, why do you want to come and live in the Oasis of Peace? Most of them would say that the main motive is their children. They want to provide their kids a much more humane environment and reality, okay? Not like the outside, one-sided uh, reality. And uh, people who have become uh, aware to the possibility of there is no other way for us except to find a way how to share our lives here as equals because we are all human beings. So there are many of those people. But the media, uh, especially the local media, both by the way, Jewish and Arab media, they are like, you know, always checking us, you know, about every small issue that we did not agree about. Then they make like uh, a mountain of uh, a mole uh, mound. Oasis of Peace, they think that it should be perfect here and that we should be hugging each other every morning and every evening and uh, I don't think that peace means that. Peace, that doesn't mean that you should hug the other person every morning and every evening. It is about respect. It is about respecting borders between you and them. It is about carrying ideas and thoughts that really doesn't turn to be like a racist. Or uh, It's about tolerance. It's about common humanity. To see our children here playing together and going out together, Jewish and Palestinian. And uh, This is a generation that I think uh, is... Uh, one of the most beautiful uh, generations that we are bringing up here, our children, including my two sons who are now not children. I mean, our eldest son just celebrated uh, 33 years yesterday, 1st of June, and uh, our second son is about 30. But they both grew up here. And now they are living, the eldest is living in Tel Aviv because of his work. He's working in computer, uh, like high tech, and uh, the other one also in the same thing in Jerusalem. And from what I know, I mean, they, their friendship, their, their group, their uh, friends around them, 
they are both Jewish and Palestinian. That's how they grew up here, and they took the, the, this with them to, towards the outside. And they, of course, as young people, you know, they sit and they talk about politics and they argue, but not to the point of, you know, getting to disconnect their relation with each other. Or mm. Somehow we all know that we are living under a big lie, you know. There are too many lies in history. Uh, anyway, back to your question, I think um, through the years there is uh, some uh, intention to ignore our existence in this community. Uh, if, if, the, if it will happen like tomorrow or uh, a few days later, some conflict will uh, come up in the community. Then you will see a line of journalists coming up to to cover the conflict. You know, through that the rest of the time we are living in in peace and in uh, respect and uh, friendship and we celebrate together different holidays and uh, personal uh, birthdays. And every time I am around uh, one of those occasions, I just uh, feel you know so emotional. You know, seeing this huge group of hundreds of Jews and Palestinians celebrating together as normal people. You know, and I keep saying to myself, why can't this happen outside? So you're inspired by the current generation, you say. Are you optimistic about the future for the Middle Eastern region? Yeah. I mean, this I, I never had a direct answer for this question, being optimistic or pessimistic. Some days I just go to bed, you know, feeling so negative about what I watched on TV. And sometimes I, like, go with a lot of hope. And uh, you can, uh, you know, hear stories happening every day. Uh, sometimes you hear a very beautiful story of a beautifully human relation between Palestinians and Jews that took place during that day. And sometimes you hear an ugly story that makes you depressed. But in general, I think towards the far future or the, the near future, all of those who are trying to kind of create a reality that is based on denying the existence of the others, okay, will fail. It will take time, but I think... Uh, at some point, we will all realize that there is no other way. And I, I, I think, like the, comparing today to the back to the 1980s when I came to the community, I think in, in spite of all what we see on TV and hear on the news, there are more and more people on both sides, Jews and Palestinians, who are more aware of the need of the other side. But uh, what is missing is that some leadership, you know, some people to lead those people to in some kind of political party or. Uh, Somebody to, to have enough courage to come up and say, okay, there is no other way except for us to live together as equals. We can live together as equals. It's not, it doesn't necessarily mean one state for everybody. It could be. I mean, uh, this might be my ultimate hope. One state. Why not? Okay, Because after all, our conflicts here are not Jews and Palestinians. Okay? Uh, it is people and people who have different interests in life. And, but we could figure out other, other, other ways, you know, maybe some kind of confederation. But at least, I mean, the, to find out a, a different way of living together in a, a more peaceful way. Uh, now, during the corona time, I mean, like we have been hearing for many years that 30 to 40 percent of the medical staff in the Israeli hospitals are Palestinian Arabs, Israeli Palestinians. I don't know why. I mean, there are so many Israeli Palestinians who are studying medicine. Every year, there are like 100 and more graduates who... Some of them uh, study here in the country and some may uh, go to some universities in Eastern Europe and they study there and come back. And uh, of course, they have to pass that state uh, exam and uh, they do. And uh, so many of them are working in the hospitals and uh, many of them has, are, have become also heads of departments. Uh, one of them is a member, a young son of our uh, neighboring family here, Dr. Suleiman Boulos. Suleiman is now 40 years old. Two years ago, he was appointed 
the head of the oncology department in in Sha'aret uh, Sadiq Hospital. It's uh, one of the big hospitals in Jerusalem. The youngest man to be ever occupying such a position. And uh, like him, we have many others. So Jews go to the hospitals today. And, uh, and as I mentioned in my book, because I had to spend uh, two weeks uh, many years ago in the hospital, you lie on the bed in the hospital and you don't know who will come to you. Is it a doctor? I don't know whatever uh, Arab name or a doctor, whatever Jewish name. Okay. And uh, the same thing with the nurses. So you see so much humanity there and, and people get really very emotional when, uh, when they, are, uh, they go there with, with certain you know, thoughts and uh, judgments about the other uh, side. And suddenly a Jewish patient, he will be treated by an Arab doctor who saved his life because of the treatment. And uh, so all in all, I think I have to struggle to remain optimistic. I don't want to be, be a pessimistic person in this life. The community is supported in part by donations from friends associations in America, Europe and Japan. I think you mentioned that earlier. Can you tell us how interested listeners might become involved? Yeah, not necessarily directly involved, but, you know, we have like during the uh, regular times before the corona, there is an average of of a, a bus or two buses every day of tourists who come to visit our community and they get inspired by the visit here. Today, I think we are in much more less need of receiving donations and money, except maybe mainly for the primary school. The primary school has Mm -hmm. been always a a very uh, financial burden on the community. Because because of the fact that it is bilingual, uh, we uh, tend to employ a, a bigger number of teachers in the school than any other school. Many times there, are, there is a class that there has to be two teachers in the class, not only one, one Jewish and one Arab, where each speaks his language or their language. And the, the, according to the Israeli law of the Ministry of Education, they like recognize uh, classes uh, by a certain number of students. If there is a less than, uh, let's say, 20 kids in the class, so it gets m- much less money than a, a regular class will get. So anyway, we end up every year having a problem of covering the cost and of uh, uh, operating the primary school in the community here. And I would love, I mean, people just to come and visit and see the place. And they realize that there is something else that is possible here. I mean, not all about conflict and killing and conflict and killing every day. Okay, there, there is, even though we are a small group of people who are living together, we are showing an example of a different possibility. And it could work. It's uh, not only here, but all over the country. All it needs is just to recognize also the past and the history. You know, I, I always talk when I talk to Jewish groups in the country, visitors of the community. I always like to remind them that, you know, the whole idea of uh, a Jewish state and the, the idea of the establishing a state here, it, wasn't, it did not come up with the, from Jewish communities that were living at that time in the Middle East or within the Arab, in the Arab countries. It was mostly an idea that came up from Europe, where the suffering of the Jews has been very extreme from the 19th century and 18th and before pogroms and anti-Semitism and whatever. But during all those years, the Jews of the Middle East were living like everybody else, whether in Egypt or in Iraq or in Morocco. Things began to really get uh, worse because of what was happening in Palestine during the 30s and the 40s. But through the past uh, thousands of years, they were living and sharing their life together with so many other ethnicities and communities in Syria, in Iraq, in Egypt, in Lebanon, in Palestine even. 
Okay, we're coming into land. At this stage of the interview, I always asked my guest, what advice would you give to your 20-year-old self? Final question. Yeah. Just to be more open, not to believe everything that you are told by politicians, not to believe everything that you are taught in textbooks in schools. Dig more for the truth, okay? So, I mean, don't, don't judge right away because of what you know, just to remain open, to remain humble, and uh, uh, keep learning, okay? There is no end from, uh, I mean, to say, now oh, I know everything. You will never know everything. But again, the most basic thing is that to realize that the other is a human being like you. And for that reason, if you have any criticism towards this, their behavior, why they do like that, just try to imagine yourself in their place and see if you, can, if you will not behave in the same way. I remember once uh, Ehud Barak, who, was, uh, who served as a prime minister once in Israel, and he was serving also, he was a military man for most of his life. Once he said in an interview, if I was born in Gaza, I would for sure be a terrorist. So this is, I mean, uh, okay, I mean, you cannot just put uh, somebody in uh, such extreme situ- uh, uh, reality and expect of him to, like, I mean, uh, do yoga and meditation every day. People are the same everywhere. I mean, we could be hurt from the same things. We could be happy from the same things. But we have to stop being, I mean, racist means that, you know, the other is not a human being. It's not like you exactly. But we have the same feelings. We have the same emotions. We are the same thing. And that's what I uh, ask people. That's how we brought up our kids, not to judge others because of their ethnicity or color or whatever. And uh, I hope it's enough what I said. (laughs) No, that's perfect. Thank you. And Rayek, thank you so much for giving this interview. Reading your book and, and listening to you today has encouraged me that it's possible for us all to live together peacefully with the right intent, goodwill, and an open mind, even in the most difficult circumstances. So you've been uh, inspirational. Thanks ever so much. Thank you, Chris. And thanks for listening to the Compassionate Leadership interview. If you'd like to support the show, you can find me at patreon.com forward slash Chris Whitehead. Email me about the show, chris at damflask-consulting.com. You can find Compassionate Leadership, the book on Amazon. This episode was recorded by Squadcast in Sheffield and in Neve Shalom, Wahat Asalam. And the music was brought to you by 96 Back on CPU Records. Mm-hmm.